0: And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're taking a short break from my occasional series of podcasts about Rwanda to talk with Omer Bartov. If you are at all involved in the historical effort to understand the Holocaust, you'll know of Omer and his research. Omer is John K. Birkeland Distinguished Professor of European History and Professor of German Studies at Brown University, where he's taught since 2000. He's written or edited several books, books that range from careful studies of the reasons why German soldiers participated in mass atrocities, to a set of essays looking at shatter zones, borderlands between empires in Europe in the 20th centuries, to a study of the images of Jewishness in film. His most recent book, and the work we're going to discuss today, is called Anatomy of a Genocide, the Life and Death of a Town Called Buchat. It's a remarkably rich study of a small town in Eastern Europe in, mostly, the 20th century. But it's also an intensely personal book. For it is the town where Omar's mother grew up. It's fabulous. Uh, high, I highly recommend it, and I'm looking forward for a chance to talk to uh, Omar about the book. So, with that, Omar, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you for having me. So, Omar, I always start. Um, I, I, I think it's helpful for the audience to get to know some things about the authors that we interview. So, so maybe you could say a little bit about your own background and, and how you became a historian and, and how you became interested in the Holocaust and mass atrocity.
1: Um, well, um, I was born and raised in Israel um, in the 50s and 60s. Um, the society I grew up in, uh, as you can imagine, um, included many people who were survivors of the Holocaust. Um, and so my first uh, encounter with that event was through people that I simply encountered on the beach, uh, in grocery stores, on the street. Um, in, in 1961, 62, uh, during the Eichmann trial, I was a kid sitting on the porch having supper every evening with my parents and hearing the so-called live broadcasts, which were summaries of recordings of the trial every evening, four months at a time, and that certainly had an impact on me. Um, later on, I studied, at, uh, I served in the Israeli army, I studied at Tel Aviv University, and then I studied uh, in England at Oxford, taught for several years at Tel Aviv, and came to this country in 1989, and I've been living here
0: ever since. So Why? So so you have this personal experience with the Holocaust. Why did you decide to make it a professional theme?
1: Well, I should admit that I never thought that I would, and <laughs> for a long time I was reluctant um, uh, to make the Holocaust into something that I would study and make a career on. and. Uh I, I had a variety of moral compunctions about that precisely because I thought I was very close to the event. I grew up with the people who had survived it around me, uh, and I thought that historians need uh, some distance and detachment. Uh, and because of that, I did not actually begin as an historian of the Holocaust at all although it was not entirely, um, completely separate, but I became a historian of modern Germany and wrote particularly about the German military and its crimes on the Eastern Front. Um, And there there were crimes there, obviously, by the military against Jews, but they were also against many other Soviet citizens. Uh, And I was interested in motivation and indoctrination and their relationship to... Uh, committing crimes um, in warfare. It was only actually after I came to this country, when I created the distance between myself and the society that I grew up in, that I became more comfortable, which is probably the wrong word, but more ready to confront uh, the event of the Holocaust itself and at that point I suddenly realized that I had been studying for that for many years, but had not really given myself any account of that.
0: So so you've you've been working so that's that's an interesting account, actually. Maybe I could pursue that because so so I read Hitler's Army, which is one of your early books, as a graduate student at Ohio State when I was um in the European military history program there. Uh and it was right. pitched to me by the people who assigned it as a book about the holocaust which it um, isn't right so so i'm wondering maybe that's a place to ask you to say something about how how the field of holocaust studies has emerged in in the time that you've been teaching mm-hmm. so that that book now might maybe be assigned as a holocaust book even though that wasn't your intent
1: well it was not my intent and it isn't about that uh, and yeah. i've always It's curious. In in a sense, you're right. I mean, the question is an important one. People forget that in the 1950s and the 1960s, well into the 1970s, when you were reading books about World War II, uh, the Holocaust did not feature there. You can look at scores of books, uh, just open their index, and look for extermination of Jews, Holocaust, Auschwitz, uh, any of the key words, and they won't appear there. The Holocaust was considered to be part of Jewish history, but it had nothing to do with the history of the war. And when I began my uh, uh, dissertation, writing my PhD at Oxford, I was in studying German history. I was part of the historical faculty there, um, and I was writing about the German army. I was not writing about the Holocaust. Yeah. It, only subsequently, when the Holocaust moved from being in the periphery of the history of World War II into the center, that works that had been written on other topics were re-read as if they were about the Holocaust. And I've always found that curious, that people say that my first two books, um, uh, The Eastern Front, 1941-45, and Hitler's Army, were about the involvement of the German army in the Holocaust. They they might
0: they should have been probably, but they were not. <laughs> so one of the developments then in Holocaust studies is the increasing attention on what happened on the ground in Eastern Europe, uh, and your, your book kind of fits that. So can you talk about the, the way in which that's become a subject of attention for historians of the Holocaust?
1: So as I said before, um, w- w- when when the Holocaust became, and mainly in the 1980s and 90s, moved into the center of interest in uh, World War Two history, history of Nazi Germany, and European history in the 20th century, it was seen very much initially as something that had been done by Germany as a genocide that had to be studied from the top. And that's why you had such key words as Auschwitz. In Germany, still... The, with word Auschwitz is really um, a description of the Holocaust as such. And so it was seen very much as something that had to be explained from the top, um, had to be explained why it happened, how it was organized, rather than how it was experienced by its victims. The victims in that kind of historiography were only the byproducts of the, of the process of organizing uh, industrial killing. If you look at it from that point of view, then you're looking at it from Berlin, you're looking at it from Germany. But of course, the fact was that most of the Jews lived in Eastern Europe, and most of the Jews were killed in Eastern Europe. And as had become increasingly un- understood in recent years, at least half of the Jews were not all killed in these extermination camps for which the Holocaust is known in Auschwitz and Majdanek and, and Treblinka and Sobibor they were killed where they lived. And so for me, at at that point, when I started understanding this, uh, I should say I was, in a sense, going back to my early work, Mm. only my early work was about um, soldiers and how soldiers, German soldiers, had experienced the front and what they did there rather than telling the big uh, story of World War II. I did that again, but this time I wanted to see how genocide works on the ground in one town, and what happens there. Not how people are transported to extermination camps, but how they're killed in their own places of residence.
0: So you, you talk about in the, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I don't remember if it's called a preface or an introduction, but, but in a brief note at the beginning about the fact that this is a very personal book. Well, mm-hmm. Your mom lived in, in Buchach, right? At least for a while?
1: Yes, so I should say that um, when when I started thinking about the, the question that was increasingly exercising me, the question of genocide on the local level, I had to choose some location uh, that I would study. Uh, and it, would, it, it, it was obvious to me that it had to be a town in Eastern Europe because, as I said, that's where most of the Jews lived and died. Um and then I thought, well, uh, why not uh, check out the town that my mother came from, mm-hmm. uh, which I had never talked with her about uh, until that point when that thought occurred to me that I should study a certain town. There, there were two reasons for choosing that town. So one was that my mother came from there. The other was that I knew something about that town because a very famous Hebrew-language author came from that town, hmm. Shmuel Yosef Agnon. Uh, he's the only Hebrew-language author to have received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1966. And when I was in school in Israel, I read many of his books and subsequently read more. And he's a fantastic hmm. writer. Uh, and much of what he wrote was about that town as a kind of representation of East European Jewry. He left it when he was 20. Uh, but it remained the kind of sites that he always returned to. So in 1995, I thought, well, let's ask my mother about her childhood in that town. And I came to a kitchen. I was visiting Israel. I was by then already living in the United States. And I, and I said, uh, Mama, can you tell me about your childhood? I turned on a tape recorder, mm-hmm. and she spoke for an hour and a half, She had the whole story arranged in her mind. She spoke almost without any other leading question. Uh, And that was the only time that she talked about it with me. And that, in a sense, was my launching pad. That's where I started then thinking about the book and how I would uh, do it. It took me, as you can see, 20 years altogether (laughs) to finish. But uh, that was the seed of the entire (laughs) endeavor.
0: So for listeners who don't know the, the, the region, where is Buchach and, and what does it look and feel like? So
1: Buchach is a small town with about a population of about 15,000 people. That's the population that it had uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, and that's the population that it has now. So the, the number of residents hasn't changed much, although the, the people who live there have changed a great deal. It is now located in Western Ukraine. If you look at the map of Europe and you see the, the huge, uh, range of the Carpathian Mountains that divides, um, uh, East Central Europe from the more Eastern parts of Europe, uh, going all the way from Poland, uh, into Romania, uh, Bucic is on the Eastern part of the Carpathian, uh, mountains, uh, before World War II, it was in Poland. That area was ruled by Poland in the 1920s and 30s. Before World War I, it was in the, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, previously known as the Habsburg Empire. And before 1772, the, the late 18th century, it was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It's a town that was established in the Middle Ages, and from the 1500s, for 400 years had a mixed population of Poles, Ukrainians, who were not called Ukrainians initially, but subsequently, and Jews. Uh, And it was very similar in that sense to hundreds of other towns that had mixed populations throughout these parts of Eastern Europe, these so-called borderlands between what became the Russian Empire And other countries in Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, uh, now Belarus, uh, the Baltic countries, uh, and the Balkans.
0: And you, so, so in these borderlands, these, what I think you and other books call shatter zones, um, there are fracture lines, um, which in some places are shallow, and some places are deep, and some places are highly contested, and some places aren't. at the beginning of the 20th century do people living in Buchach see themselves as living in a place where everybody gets along and where the the ethnic and linguistic divides are shallow or do they see themselves living in a place with the danger of falling apart
1: so yeah that's uh that's a central question i i should say this this area that um, – another book that I co-edited with my colleague Eric White, uh, Shatterzone yeah. of Empires, um, th- this entire area from the Baltic to the Black Sea um, was an area where uh, different empires met. Um, the Russian Empire, the Austrian Empire, the German Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. And so they were all areas with mixed populations – they become shatter zones, as we call them, uh, because these empires fell apart in World War I. And until World War I, um, the, the the mix of populations and religions was part of the nature of these empires. After World War I, these empires um, divided into nation states. And these nation states are states in which a certain nation, let's say the Polish nation, is the majority and wants it to be a Polish state. But uh, these are also states that have large minorities. And the question is, what would be the position of those minorities, which are Ukrainian or Jewish or German or or Belarusian or whatever they are, what's their relationship to the state? Will they be tolerated or not? So that's the sort of general outline. Now, for people living in this town, you know, for for a long time, for centuries, they lived side by side. It would be wrong to say that this was a pluralistic society or a multicultural society. These are modern terms that would not have applied there. They were identified by their religion, by the socioeconomic roles, uh, but at the same time, they did not know any other way of living but with each other. There was no other reality. And so I wouldn't call it a harmonious existence, but it was a natural existence. That's how people lived uh, in these towns. This b- begins to change with the rise of nationalism in the latter part of the 19th century. And it's nationalism that starts telling people that some of them belong and some of them do not, that they are um, uh, inherently different from each other. That, that some of them have a right to be there, some of them do not. Some of them are parasites and some of them are indigenous. That kind of conversation, that kind of discourse from the, sadly from the 1880s leading to World War I becomes increasingly antagonistic and increasingly violent rhetorically. But there is no violence. It's still under this multi-ethnic empire. Uh, the Austrian Empire, and the empire knows how to manage uh, these tensions. So there's a growth of national movements, but they're not fighting each other. All this falls apart with World War I, which is very violent in that area, and its immediate aftermath, because World War I does not end there in, in 1918, but immediately continues as a war between Poles and Ukrainians in this area. And by the time this town and the whole area of, of Eastern Galicia where this town is located becomes part of the resurrected Polish state, a state that had disappeared in the late 18th century and was recreated after World War I. There is a huge amount of tension between Poles and Ukrainians. And added to that, there is a growth of anti-Semitism both among the common population on the ground and in the Polish government. It, by the second part of the 1930s, the Polish government also begins pursuing increasing, uh, increasingly anti-Semitic policies. So what you have in a town like Buchach, which again is not only in that town, it's in many, many other towns in that area, is um, a competition between Poles and Ukrainians over who actually belongs there, uh, in that kind of uh, 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 struggle, uh, the Ukrainians say that they're the indigenous population that had been colonized by the Poles uh, and that the Poles were using, as the language there goes, their Jewish lackeys to oppress the indigenous Ukrainian population. The Poles say that they are those who brought culture and civilization to barbarous areas and that the Ukrainians actually are Poles but haven't quite understood it. And as they become civilized, they will become part of the Polish nation. And Poles and Ukrainians agree on one thing, and that is that the Jews don't belong there, and that whichever kind of state they will eventually have, the Poles will have a greater Poland, or the Ukrainians will have this area to themselves. They should not have any Jews there. this there is a fair amount of violence going on there in the 1930s because the Ukrainians uh, create uh, underground organizations, uh, some of which use uh, terrorist uh, tactics against Polish rule and the poles suppress that very violently. Uh, but it's still on a relatively minor scale. Uh, once World War II begins, of course, uh the scale of the violence uh, increases tremendously uh but it is in that sense triggering many of the tensions that had existed before the war and that are internal to that area rather than only violent policies brought in from the outside
0: yeah so 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 the Ukrainians and the Polish have their their imagined future whether you define that as an imagined utopia or imagined I don't know autonomy or whatever. What if if for the Jews who are living in Buchach in the late 30s, how are they imagining what their future in the late 30s? How how are they imagining what their future might look like?
1: Um, in the in the late 1930s, uh, Jewish communities in Buchach and in other con- and, and in other towns in that region uh, are increasingly desperate. Um, there, there are those who had left these towns and moved to the biggest cities and had been hoping to integrate into, mostly into, uh, Polish society. But the growth of Polish anti-Semitism makes that very difficult. Even those who live in large cities such as Lemberg and Wów or Warsaw or Krakow, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to become part of Polish society. Uh, so what are the choices? Uh, most Jews at that point, also because of great economic hardship, would like to leave. But it's very hard to leave. Uh, you have to remember that the 1930s are the period of the Great Depression. Most countries don't want immigrants, don't want refugees. Uh, it's very hard to go anywhere. The United States, which used to be the main uh, site of emigration uh, for Jews from Eastern Europe before World War One has increasingly harsh immigration policies, uh, so it's very hard to um, um, be allowed into the United States. Uh, the other main goal would be for many Jews there, especially younger Jews who are tending towards Zionism, toward, um Jewish nationalism, is to go to Palestine. Palestine at the time is under the British mandate. It's ruled by the British. Uh, In Palestine in 1936, there is an an Arab uprising against British rule, largely because of the large Jews who are coming there, and Arabs there feel that Jews are taking over their land. And therefore the British become increasingly restrictive in allowing Jewish immigration into Palestine. And so Jews are stuck they can't go to Palestine, they can't go to the United States or to Canada for that matter or to Britain or to France. All those countries don't want immigrants. Um, and there is no one wants them where they are and they're both politically under a great deal of pressure and uh, economically um, um, have very uh, few chances to, to make a living and poverty is very widespread. Uh, So there is a sense of great uh, despair. Some young people uh, become members of the Communist Party or Socialist Party. Uh, It's actually a very small group of people. Uh, But uh, that means that eventually Jews tend to be identified by nationalists with the Bolsheviks. Um, and there is a phenomenon in both in Ukrainian nationalism and Polish nationalism where they speak about the Judo-Komuna, about Judeo-Communism or Judeo-Bolshevism, accusing the Jews of having
0: collaborated later on with the Bolsheviks. So that's, that's a good transition point, because, of course, for the people in Buchach, the first um, invasion is from the east, and it's the Soviets who occupy Buchach first. What what are the goals for that occupation, and how does their presence reshape life in Buchach? Exactly. So in
1: in 1939, Nazi Germany and uh, the Soviet Union uh, sign a pact, and according to the secret clauses of this pact, they divide Eastern Europe between themselves, and the Soviets get the eastern part of Poland. Uh, that eastern part of Poland includes uh, eastern Galicia and includes Buchach. Uh, so the Soviets come there in September 1939 and remain there until, in, in that town until early July 1941. What the Soviets want to do is to make that an, an inherent part of the Soviet Union and more directly part of Ukraine because much of Ukraine is already a Soviet socialist state. Uh, this is only the western part of it. And they pursue their usual policies. First of all, they try to nationalize the economy, which destroys it. And the, the economy is very weak there in any case. So it, uh, it creates even greater shortages of food and, and other products. Uh, secondly, they go after those they see as their enemies. And their enemies um, uh, either define politically as nationalists or define economically as um um industrialists, as the as the middle class, as the bourgeoisie. Uh, and so they begin with um policies of deportation. They begin by deporting large numbers of Poles, then they deport large number of Jews, and then toward um the, the middle of nineteen forty one, they deport and arrest large numbers of Ukrainian nationalists. I should say that initially, when the Soviets come to that area, both Ukrainians and Jews are not as negative about that as the Poles are. The Poles mm-hmm. are because it means the destruction of the Polish state. The Ukrainians don't have much love for the Polish state because they want freedom from it and they begin initially, they believe initially that the Soviets would give them an independent Ukrainian state, which the Soviets have no intention of doing. The Jews also have not much love for the Polish state, which had been quite oppressive towards them as well. But they also are happy not to be under German Nazi rule. So however bad the Soviets are, they're not as bad as the the Nazis, and they hear more and more information about what the Germans are doing in other parts of Poland that they occupy, where they begin killing Jews in large numbers. But by the end of Soviet rule, nobody wants it anymore. Um, uh, since that turns out to be extremely brutal rule. There is one irony, though, which is that while the Poles and the Ukrainians remember Soviet rule as particularly brutal because of the deportations, the Jews remember it somewhat differently. Because if you were deported as a Jew by the Soviets in 1940, Mm let's say, you had a uh, 30% chance, more or less, of dying in deportation but that left you 70% chance of surviving. If you were not deported and you stayed there under German rule, then you had an over 90% chance of dying because the Germans targeted the Jews directly for genocide. So in a sense, for Jews, deportation by the Soviets as compared to what happened later could be seen also as lucky, whereas Poles and Ukrainians remember this only as a, as a catastrophe for them and often associated to the Jews as having somehow been also complicit in their own victimization.
0: So you have a wonderful phrase or sentence in this chapter that, that talks about the way in which the violence of the Soviet people changed the relationships in, in Buchach. And you write, the intimacy of friendships that served as a barrier to stereotypes was now transformed into an intimacy of violence. Uh, an intimacy of violence that strove to eradicate personal qualms by inflicting gratuitous pain. Could you, you s- unpack that sentence for us a little bit? Yeah.
1: So, you know, this, this takes me back to the, the, the main question that, that I had when I started yeah. this study. Um, because the, 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 the concept that, that people often apply to genocide Genocide is a huge thing, right? Genocide is is a moment where an organization or a state decides to eradicate an entire group as such, right? The, the, the All members of that group or the group as a group. Uh, and we associate it, as I said, in the case of the Holocaust, uh, with extermination camps, with deportations of millions of people and so forth. Uh, so the, the, the concept behind it is that In order to do that, you need to dehumanize the people that you're about to kill. Uh, You need to think of them as different from you, as not human, as as something else, subhuman or some kind of other species. And you need to create detachment between the perpetrators and the victims uh, so as to facilitate killing such large numbers of people because it's not so easy uh, to kill large numbers of people, not only technically but also psychologically. So to create this distance by deporting them to camps and then um, in the camps um, um, compartmentalizing the killing process so that no one is specifically responsible for the whole thing. People are responsible only for parts of it, right? So when I first started thinking about this book, I thought, how does this look on the ground? And when I went to study Buchach, the first thing I realized was that when the Germans came to that place, they uh, did not kill the Jews right away. They stayed there for a while. And it was a small place and there were very few Germans there. And therefore, they got to know them. So there was no dehumanization and there was no compartmentalization and there was no detachment. They actually killed people they knew. They knew them by name. And secondly, I realized that it was not at all simply the relationship between perpetrators and victims. There were all these other people living there. There were Poles and Ukrainians, and they were all neighbors, and they all knew each other. Now, when genocide happens on the local level, it means that it's a social event. It's not something that is out of the ordinary. It becomes part of the routine of life. And in that routine, it is hard to... If you can imagine that you you have neighbors in your house, you know their children, they may have studied with your children, and somebody comes and takes them out to the streets and shoots them. Um, What does that do to you and to, to your relationship with them? And in a sense, what I found out that much of the violence there is violence between neighbors. Part of it is taking over people's property. Part of it is killing them yourself. Part of it is sheltering them and then denouncing them or sheltering them for money uh, and then denouncing them. And, And in that process, in order to enable you to kill people you know, you would at times use gratuitous violence. That is, you have to transform them into victims because you know them not as victims. You know them as your neighbors. And that is the kind of intimacy of violence which is exactly the opposite of what we were told about the need to dehumanize before you kill. It's actually how do you make people you know you've lived with uh into people that you can kill and rob and and and, and, and ultimately forget about.
0: So you talked about how there were relatively few Germans here. So so let's jump into the German o- period of German occupation. So so, how many Germans actually live in but germans uh, as part of the german occupation force not not ethnic german how, how many germans come to Buchach and, and and who are they and what kind of uh, what what kind of backgrounds do they have yeah,
1: so uh, again uh, what you find when when you look at uh, such events at the local level uh, is very different from our impression when we look from above so the 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 security police personnel and those are the people who are charged with actual killing of Jews. Uh, they may be people from the Gestapo, from the secret police, uh, from the SD, uh, from the SS. But these are um, Nazi agencies uh, who are put together in what is called the security police. They are not even in Buchach itself. There are between 20 and 30 of them, depending on the time, but somewhere between 20 and 30. And they're in a nearby town called Chortkuf. Um Those 20 to 30 Germans, and not all of them are Germans. some are ethnic Germans, some are Poles or Czechs, um, but of, of uh, German extraction. Those 20 to 30 people, some of whom bring their, their wives and their children and their parents, Uh, and live a pretty comfortable life, Uh, they kill altogether in that area about 60,000 Jews. Now, obviously, for 20 to 30 men to kill 60,000 people, mostly between late summer of 1942 and summer of 1943, right? So that's in about a year. Uh, even less than a year, uh, it is impossible for this small number of men to kill so many people on their own. So what they do is they create an entire apparatus that makes it possible for them to do it. Uh, they themselves, some of them are uh, former policemen uh, or still professional policemen. Uh, some of them uh, uh, were minors or were a car salesman or whatever they might've been. And often they were looking for something they could do, which would not send them to the Eastern front where the okay. odds of getting killed were very high in a place like this, they carried guns, but nobody was shooting back at them. They could shoot whoever they wanted with impunity, but there was no resistance um, because uh, they, they, they had the guns and other people did not. Um, so they create an entire apparatus that facilitates the killing. And that is made up, first of all, of a battalion of Ukrainian policemen, uh, of about 300 Ukrainian policemen who assist them in rounding up people, and then of local police forces, Ukrainian police forces in, in every town. Uh, German uh, gendarmes or regular uniformed police in every town, small numbers in Buchach, there's maybe 12 of them, sometimes 15, uh, and Jewish police, uh, which is appointed by the Jewish councils that the Jews are forced to form in every town, including in Buchach. And so the killing process is that these 20 to 30 um, security uh, police uh, personnel Get up in the morning, drive down to a town like Buchach, have it surrounded by Ukrainian police, uh, round up the Jews that they can find on the streets, in the houses, uh, bring them to a nearby hill. Uh, They they have already prepared pits uh, there the the day before and shoot them into those pits and they kill hundreds of people in uh, such an operation. It usually begins... Um, the night before, and it
0: ends uh, the following evening. So you deal with a lot of these people with, in, in a great deal of depth. Can you give some sense of the range of, of responses among the Germans to, to the fact that this was something they did? Uh, you know, how many of them embraced this eagerly? How many of them were reluctant participants? How many tried to avoid um, how, how does that all work out? Yes, this is
1: also one of those things that uh, if you look at a place, at one place, over the entire period of time and you get to know the individuals there, uh, and I read many, many of the um, court records, there were various trials and investigations, by, especially by the West German police after the war, you get a pretty good picture of who was there and what they thought about it and what else they were doing. So these uh, security police, uh, guys, uh, they, they have absolutely no problem doing what they're doing. Uh, what you find mm-hmm. is that in fact, there were several times in various investigations after the war, was there an execution commando and a Shisung's commando? Uh, whether people were specifically assigned to, to, to do the killings among them. And they say, no, there was no need for it because they were always volunteers. We never had to look for anyone. Not only were there people who always wanted to do it, but there were others who were not supposed to do it but were waiting around. If the guy shooting ran out of ammo and had to replace his magazine, then somebody else would jump in and and say, well, let me do it. So among those people... There is no problem whatsoever. There are very uh, troubling cases. That, as I said, some of them bring their wives and their children. Uh, one of them is uh, known to have shot people with a pistol with one hand while he was holding the hand of his four-year-old kid uh, in the other hand. Um, so there, there is, um, I would say, um, a normalization of this kind of atrocity over time that is quite extraordinary. There are many photos of, of these people. They had photo albums, and you see them also partying, having a good time, having wine and schnapps, and uh, making merry and going out um, on picnics. And in between, they would sweep down on a town and kill whoever they could find there among the Jews. Now, there are other Germans on the ground, and in Buchach what is interesting uh, there are uh, engineers there because Buchach had a, a railroad, bridge, and tunnel, and those were blown up by the Soviets when they retreated. And the Germans want to rebuild them, so they bring an engineering company. And there are other people who come there. Again, they come with wives, with children, and they live a normal life in the town. But in the town in which they're trying to have a kind of comfortable bourgeois existence, uh, every once in a while, um, the the police comes and murders people, and often they kill them on the street uh, as they're round, as they're rounding them up, or in the nearby cemetery or hill, or within often um, uh, uh, viewing distance and certainly within hearing distance. And in many cases, the Germans were there. Also, they want help. They want babysitters. They want washers. They want hairdressers. They want dentists. All of those are provided by the Jewish population there, of course, for free. And then those people who fix their hair and take care of their teeth and clean their homes are one day taken out and shot. So they know them all. It's all happening within a small town where everybody knows everybody else. Uh, And so this notion that we have, how can people do it, and how were they uh, incentivized to do it, uh, it doesn't look like that on the ground. On the ground, there is a kind of normality of genocide, uh, where you can understand on the, on the individual level why it, each person did what they did. It's when you look at the whole, then you see, well, you lived in a town for several months and t- thousands of people were killed right in front of your eyes and you knew them personally. And then you packed up your bags and went back home as if nothing had happened and usually didn't talk about it until the police called you in for interrogation, possibly 20 years later.
0: So how much do we know about how the Jews who lived in Buchach about how they experienced life under the Germans?
1: So you know I uh, used uh, a very large number of uh, personal accounts, uh, testimonies, diaries, letters, interviews, uh some of which were written during the time, some of which were collected very shortly thereafter, uh, some of which uh w- testimonies given 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. Um and it, it's one uh, one hesitates to generalize because, of course, um, this was uh, extremely personal. Uh, but I would say that what is perhaps most striking uh, in these accounts, uh, Jews understood very quickly, within a few months of the most uh, that the Germans were out to kill them all, and they they, in a sense, accepted that, that. It was clear. There was no question about it. But their survival depended on their neighbors, as did often uh, German uh, um, 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 Germans targeting them. Because for the Germans, it was often very difficult to tell who was a Jew and who was a Poland and who was a Ukrainian. They didn't know where people might hide, might find shelter. And so in a sense, much of uh, what Jews talk about, those who survived, is about their neighbors, who sheltered them and who denounced them. Uh, the only way to survive was if, if you were helped by your neighbors. But often those who helped you also denounced you. Uh, and so it, you again find this kind of intimacy of violence in the sense that it is very much a social phenomenon. It's not simply that the Germans come in, pick out the Jews and kill them. They have to pick them out from the population and the population has to somehow uh, cooperate with that operation, and in large part it does.
0: So what happens in Buchach after the Germans are driven out?
1: So by June 1943 already, uh, this entire area, uh, which uh, in, at the time is uh, called distant Galicia, and it's, um, it's an administrative area that used to be eastern Galicia, that entire area is declared judenrein or clean of Jews. Now, there are still Jews living there, uh, but they're either working in forced labor camps or they're in hiding. Um, at that time particularly in late 1943 and then in much of 1944, when this area is still under German rule, there is growing violence between Poles and Ukrainians. The Ukrainian underground begins to uh, carry out its own policies, which have nothing to do with German policies, which is to clean this area of Poles. Now that the Jews are gone, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, as it is called, with its new uh, armed um, uh, organization uh, the the uh, the upa the the ukrainian insurgent army begin cleansing this area of poles by attacking villages and massacring the people there so as to make them run away and this keeps happening until this area is taken over by the red army which happens between the spring and summer of 1944. When the Red Army comes in, um, it encounters not only resistance by the Germans, uh, which it drives out, but also by the Ukrainian underground, which is very much against being taken over by the Soviets. It's nationalist, and they had worked together uh, formerly with the Germans. And so the Soviets then begin their own uh, operation of cleansing the Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, and they deport large numbers of Ukrainians. So that by 1947, more or less, in the following three years between the liberation of that area, which the Ukrainians don't really see as liberation by the Red Army, this area has been cleansed of Poles, cleansed of Jews, and cleansed of Ukrainian nationalists. And by 1947, there is a Soviet regime in force. The nationalist Ukrainian resistance has been done away with, with thousands deported to gulags, uh, Central Asia, and so forth. There is a population exchange agreement between the communist uh, rule in Poland and the Kremlin, whereby all the Poles that have remained in that area are moved to what becomes Poland Poland has moved to the West. Uh, Parts of Poland are now in what used to be East Germany, and parts of Eastern Poland become Ukraine. And Ukrainians who were living in that area are deported into uh, what now becomes Western Ukraine. And so that area becomes, for the first time in its history, uh, a homogeneous area, ethnically homogeneous, only Ukrainian, and it remains so to this day.
0: You have, you have, as you say, you rely on trial transcripts, and this is not a book about the trials, but you, you've read many of them in preparation for this book. What happens, to what extent are the perpetrators brought to justice?
1: Uh, so that's uh, another uh, part of the story. Um, generally, um, uh, as you may know, uh, although uh, West Germany um Um, pursued a policy of justice against former um, Nazis, particularly from the late 1950s uh, through the 1960s, most of the people in general, most of the people uh, who were investigated were not indicted. Most of those who were indicted were not sentenced, and most of those who were sentenced were given very light sentences. Uh, the the head of the office, the former head of the Office of Investigations of these crimes uh, wrote in an essay some years ago that on average uh, every uh, uh, murder uh, in the Holocaust cost about 10 minutes in jail. Uh, So that gives you some kind of general sense of it. In the case of the specific people from Bucha who were involved in the killings, in Buchach and its area, very few were tried. Many of them served as witnesses if they could be found, but were not indicted. Uh, Of those who were indicted, uh, very few were sentenced. Uh, Only two or three were sentenced to life imprisonment. And in most cases, they were released long before their natural death. Uh So by and large, one can say that justice was not served well uh, in these cases. What was served well is history, because all these investigations, yeah. although they didn't bring uh, the, much punishment, they produced a mass of documentation, including a great deal of eyewitness reports. People came to testify in these investigations, and that's invaluable material
0: for people like me trying to reconstruct what actually happened there. So you've you've been there, you've talked to people there. How do the people who are living in Buchach now remember the the period of the 30s and 40s or 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 do they not think about it?
1: Well, you should understand first of all, I mean very few people who were living uh then are still alive now. Uh, it's uh, a time yeah. ago. I started going there the first time I went there was in 2003. So there were still a number of people living there who uh, would have been alive at the time. Um, But you should also understand that as a result of what I described before, the population of the city changed a great deal. Uh, The the majority of the uh, inhabitants of Buchach, the city itself, not the region, uh, before World War II were Poles and Jews. Ukrainians were a minority in that town. The Poles were driven out, the Jews were murdered. And so the people who moved into the town after the war mostly came either from the countryside, from other villages, or they came from Poland because they were uh, part of the population exchange between Poland and the Soviet Union. There were some people uh, who were living there uh, in the um, some, some years ago. They've mostly passed away now who remembered and uh, talked about it, um, especially a few women who remembered that they had Jewish friends. They had very similar memories to the memories that my mother had when I talked with her. Uh, you know, they spoke Ukrainian on the streets. They often studied in Polish in school. Uh, and then at home, people spoke their own languages. But, you know, as children, they were friends. Um, and Some of these women also remembered the horrors of the mass killing on the streets and described them in very stark terms, uh, seeing how babies were being thrown out of uh, uh, balconies uh, onto the street, how as they were walking to school, the streets were strewn with uh, bodies and smashed brains and uh, really horrific scenes. But at the same time, uh the general argument of those who were willing to talk about it was that we, meaning we Poles and Ukrainians, did all we could to help our Jewish neighbors. Now, whether that was the way they remembered it or whether that was the way they wanted to present it to me or to others who were interviewing for me is a bit hard to say, but it clearly was not the case from other mass evidence that I have. Uh, and so while there was a memory of the the, the horror of the event, uh, the horrors were ascribed strictly to the Germans and not
0: to one's own group. My, my last question about the book itself, or <clears throat> excuse me, at least about the process of researching, is that, that this is a book where you did have, at least to begin, you had this personal connection. Of, uh, your, your mother had a, a, a personal history here. You got to know the people, both who you talk to physically and who you learn to know through their writings because this is a micro-level approach very well. I'm wondering if the process of researching and writing this book was different for you, whether professionally or emotionally, than than some of the other books you've you've written.
1: Yes, it was. First of all, I spent more time on this book than on any other book that I wrote yeah um and much more than i anticipated i thought writing a book on a small town how long would it take a couple of years and i'll be done with it and and lo and behold uh, 20 years later it's finally out uh so you know i i i traveled to nine countries i i have documents from over 50 archives i had to use nine languages uh it was a, a major undertaking just as a scholarly one but you're right that uh it, it changed all kinds of things for me. Um, I, as I said, I started interviewing my mother, uh, and she gave me a kind of first view into that town before everything happened, right, when, when things were relatively normal. Yeah. Uh, I did not find much about my family. This is not a family history at all. Uh, my, my mother, her two brothers and her parents came to Palestine in 1935 all the rest of the family was murdered. Nobody came out. We don't even know how they specifically, our members of my family specifically, were killed. I know a lot about how the Jews, they were killed. I know of many individuals, but I, I haven't found anything about members of my own family, but they're all gone. Um, the, the, the process of writing about a place um, that you have a personal connection to and writing about it, in large part through the eyes of the people who experienced the history of that place over time um, does make for a very different um, um, understanding of uh, how history works and how important it is to do what, you know, um, those who founded the modern historical profession in the 19th century uh, always told us to do to write history with empathy to write history yeah. also through the eyes of the people who were there through Einfühling to feel yourself into the history and I really tried to do that in the sense that while I was interested in, in reconstructing what happened I was even more interested in reconstructing how people understood what happened and what you find is that the, there may be some uh, objective history to it. Obviously, thousands of Jews were murdered, thousands of, of Poles were ethnically cleansed and so forth, but that each group experienced that as a group and as individuals very differently, and that, that very <coughs> different memory uh, has persisted beyond the event itself and is still very much part of how people remember and think about those events, and that forms in many ways how they think about themselves today. So, in that sense, this kind of empathy, it's not sympathy, but empathy, gives you, lets you into the history in a very different way. And I should add to that that, you know, there's been, historians have often been very reluctant to use personal testimonies, they prefer documents that come from archives. They're afraid that people will tell you what happened may be subjective and inaccurate and forget things, and all this is true. But it's also true that when you use this kind of uh, uh, these kind of uh, uh, historical documents uh, of testimonies of stories of diaries, you have a history of genocide or of any event that is a human history. It's in that sense you bring. People into it. you don't look at it only as something that you organize, as you, you rehumanize the event exactly against what the intention of the perpetrators was, which was to take people and humanity out of it. And for me, this was maybe the most important thing.
0: Well it's a wonderful book and I highly encourage the listeners to to go and get it. There's there's as as Omer says, he he immerses himself in the experience of people and in the the memories and reflections of people and um is able to to extract an extraordinary number of, of of personal stories of this experience. And, and Omer, you've been very generous with your time. I just have two final questions, and these are the questions I always end with. Uh and the first is to say, um, although It might be harder for you to identify a book or two that were meaningful to you during this research since it did take 20 years, but um, listeners always are interested in in, in suggestions for places they might go to learn more. So so what would you suggest we read or or perhaps watch um, that will shed more light on the Holocaust or, or, or the things that you were talking about in this book?
1: Well, you know, there's so many things that I could uh, talk about uh, in literature, in history, in cinema. Uh, I read a book um, maybe three, four years ago that I thought was simply a beautifully written book that did something that is akin to what I was doing, although very differently at the same time. It's called The Hair with Amber Eyes, by Edmund DeVal. Oh. It, it came out in 2010. Uh, it's a beautiful book uh, about how a man who's a potter, a very well-known uh, potter in English, uh, rediscovers where he came from and the roots of his family. And among other things, it takes him also to Ukraine. Uh, and it takes him to uh, how uh, his, his family was, was destroyed Uh, during the Holocaust, uh, and how when he was growing up, uh, and he's an Anglican, he he didn't even know that he was Jewish, uh, how he, when he was growing up, knew nothing of it, and how recovering that history uh, is a recovery both of his own roots, but also of an entire hidden and forgotten and erased uh, tale. And it's beautifully written, so I would very strongly recommend it. as something that tells you a story through individual eyes, which is much, much bigger than that.
0: I will put that on my reading list. I've not heard of that. The second question is is maybe unfair to somebody who just finished a twenty-year project, but we are academics. Um, so the question is, what are you working on now?
1: Oh no, it's uh, it's uh, I'm 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 happy to talk about it, and we could talk about it for another hour, but I'm not sure we. Uh, No, I've been working already for the last uh, three years on a very different project uh, that I call uh, Israel-Palestine a personal political history. Uh, And Uh what I'm interested in doing since uh, I was born in Israel in the 1950s is to write a history of how people of my generation – born into the state of Israel, both Jews and Arabs relate to that place. What is our relationship to a place that was created as a state very shortly before we were born? Uh, We are the same age as the state, more or less. Uh, Our our parents, whether they were um, Palestinian Arabs or uh, Jews coming to Israel, uh, were there before the state or were elsewhere. Uh, and we, in a sense, normalized that state by being uh, either the first indigenous uh, as Jews or the first who were made non-indigenous as Arabs. And so that's something that I'm very interested in exploring further.
0: Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that, too. Hopefully not. I don't have to wait for another 17 years for that one. But if that's what it takes, everybody will understand. But thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you sometime again about a book in the future on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks so much. You've been listening to an interview with Omer Bartov about his new book, Anatomy of a Genocide, The Life and Death of a Town Called Buchach. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I talk with Erin Jesse about her book, Negotiating Genocide in Rwanda, The Politics of History. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.